Our Father, we gather here on a Sunday morning to be reminded that Jesus is the lover of our souls, and it is to his bosom that we fly. Like a room full of prodigals, oh God, we find our safest place to be nestled into the bosom of our Savior. We understand, oh God, that we are so prone to wander and ask that you will, by your cords of love, bind us close to you, that we might find ourselves not uh, doing things that bring shame to the gospel, that we might discover that our greatest place of safety is closest to our God. Father, we do want to pray for the events of the past week. They have been multifaceted. And I pray particularly for the Mounts family that is suffering such an enormous loss. And pray that you will um, assure those three kids that not only will you never leave them nor forsake them, but that the community of God's people will make sure that they are safe. I thank you for the privilege, O oh God, of being a part of the community of the faithful. Now, Father, uh, accept our gifts. They are small, but they are tokens of our love of thee and our trust that the future is better off in the hands of our God than they are in the hands of our financial managers. We pray today in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who taught his people to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Who uh, finish up in the next four or five weeks, four weeks, I think, our, um, our study of the Gospel of Mark. I, I saved these passages until now because I didn't really want them to interrupt to any, or distract us before Easter. So uh, bear with me. We're in Mark chapter 12. I want to read two passages for you, uh, beginning at verse 13. And uh, then we'll jump in a minute. So just go there first. Mark 12, verse 13. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and in care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God and truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now verse 41 of that same chapter. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. 
So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury, for they all put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, oh, that endures forever. Gang, uh, in these last few chapters uh, of the uh, Gospel of Mark that cover the uh, last week of Jesus' life, you get two passages that I've read them both that, ha- that deal with money issues. Um, the first one that uh, I read out of uh, verses 13 through 17 is that famous story about people coming to Jesus and asking him about taxes, and he, ad- he answers, as you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and unto God what is God's. Uh, Just a couple of quick things about it, because I want to spend most of my time on the other story. But certainly one thing that you see in that story is a display of divine genius. That is, uh, his enemies thought that they had devised a question so craftily that uh, whatever answer he gave would get him in trouble with somebody. Uh, But again, we see that divine genius prevails. And, And I love it every time when they're trying to trick Jesus that he always stumps them because he is in possession of divine genius. Now, there's one other thing that I want to say about this passage that I want you to think about. Uh, Just a thought to consider. Are you ready? Um, There is, I'm told, um, from time to time I'm told, uh, out there in the grand, glorious Christian world, what, for uh, for lack of a better term, is called a Christian militia. And the Christian militia, their their earmark is that they're not going to, they're trying to not pay taxes. They don't want to give Uncle Sam any tax money. And their rationale for doing that is they say, um, because our government is spending money on abortions, and I'm not going to send tax dollars to let them spend on abortions. And ladies and gentlemen, I must agree. Our government is indeed spending money on abortions, and I don't think our money should be spent on abortions. That's a horrible thing. We consider abortion murder, and uh, I hate it that our government is doing that. But here's what I want you to consider. When Jesus made this statement in in, uh, Mark chapter 12, the ruler of that area of the country was the Roman government, of course, its head being Tiberius, who died around 37 AD, which coincides rather nicely with the end of Jesus' life. So when Jesus is saying this, it's about the same time Tiberius is ending his reign, and it is historically agreed upon that at the, during the closing years of Tiberius' reign, it was marked by utter debauchery and a reign of terror. Now, gang, here's my point. Jesus, knowing that that government was utterly corrupt, said... Render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and under God what is God's. Gang, our government is not the first government that ever mocked God. I would dare say that the government of Tiberius was far more indifferent to the Christian gospel than is even our government. I, I, that's a thought I hope that you'll keep in mind when it comes to discussions about paying taxes. But now I want you to go with me to the incredibly tender scene where Jesus gives us some timeless instructions concerning our money. Money talks. 
an ancient truth that we've all heard that's true, isn't it? It does indeed talk. I read recently in an article, um, it was a statistic that baffled me. Uh, it was recording the, um, the amount of money spent on gambling in 1984. Not 94, not six years ago, but 16 years ago. The amount of money spent by Americans in gambling was $177 billion, which was over 15 times more that, uh, than Americans gave to churches of their choice. Now, I I'm simply saying, what do you think that says? If money talks, what, is, what do you think that little statistic says? Probably says a lot, and we probably wouldn't agree on exactly what it said. But it does underscore the truism, the maxim, money talks. And Jesus, in this story about this widow, sits down to do some listening. He wants to listen to some talking. And so, um, it, it, in this scene, in the midst of a, the noisy din in the temple, Jesus finds a place to watch givers without drawing any attention to himself. He is, on this occasion, being a people watcher. And none of those people that he watches knows that they are being watched, but being watched, they were. You know, um, I've told you this story before. I'm going to do it because I'm brave and courageous and stupid. Have I told you my story about Matthew Broadus? You've heard me tell this story. Matthew Broadus was a famous uh, Methodist preacher. And on one particular Sunday when he was preaching, or before he preached, as the offering was being taken up, the ushers were filing down the aisles, um, taking up the offering. Matthew Broadus walked down the aisles and watched as people gave. And then, after the offering had been completed, he returned to the pulpit. And as he watched them giving, he noticed that they were very uncomfortable, very, um, very incensed that their privacies would be violated. And so he goes back to the pulpit, and he announces his text. Matthew 12, verses 41 and following. And then he announces his sermon title. Giving with Jesus looking on and says, now I know that you were all incensed, enraged, outraged that I should come down there and, and watch you give. Well, how do you like this, this idea? Giving with Jesus looking on. What a staggering moment it is, ladies and gentlemen. What a staggering moment it is in the life of an individual soul when they first awake to the reality that Jesus is really watching. He's watching in the individual acts of worship. He is watching in the individual acts of giving. Well, returning to our story, what did, he, what did he see on this day? Well, verse 41 tells us that, uh, and many, he saw this, many who were rich put in much. 
Now, gang, we can't automatically assume that every, every rich person was wrongly motivated. Surely there was one among them that was rightly motivated in their giving. But he did apparently see much on the part of the giving of the wealthy that disturbed him. Number one, you need to understand this is a huge Passover crowd. Um, and the giving in the temple was very public. Here's how it went. There were 13 boxes placed around the temple. And it, uh, attached to those boxes were brass throats with trumpet mouths on them. If you can imagine that. They were, they were trumpets, brass trumpets with a throat that led down to a box. And so because the crowds were so big and because the giving was so public, you can imagine there was much occasion for some prancing and preening. I, I can see it now. Some wealthy, notable fellow heads to a box, and all the people begin to turn and watch. And, and his offering is so big that he can't carry it by himself, so he's brought his servants to help carry it along with him. And then almost an audible gasp as those shekels begin to tinkle and, and clang in the brass trumpets. And when they're all finished dumping it in, the, guy, the notable person kind of turns around into the audience and with a look on his face of, hmm... See if you can top that. Well, gang, uh, I, I don't know that that happened, but certainly an occasion, and there were things happening that Jesus didn't approve of. But while he watched, there was something that did bring joy to his soul. One poor widow. Now, gang, um, widows wore distinctive clothing brought on by, uh, by a life that was proverbially difficult. She stood out in a crowd, and um, uh, you almost, as you read it, at least I did, I almost wanted Jesus to, Jesus to grab her by the shirt sleeve and say, hey, 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 you keep yours. Don't get it. You need it worse than the temple needs it. Don't do that. And, and I wish I could tell you more about her. It's nothing said. I'd, like, I'd love to know where she lived and what brought on her suffering, and, and, and I'd love to know how her life how difficult. I'd love to know, but I don't know any of that. But I, can, I can't imagine how she brought these two small lepta. In fact, the Greek term is lepta. That's the plural of the Greek term lepton. Um, and the etymology of the word lepton is this. The word lepton means peeled or uh, thin or fine. And a lepton was named a lepton because it was so small, so, so thin, it was almost like a peeling. It was so thin. And I can see her walking up, you know, almost, almost stealthily, very quietly, not wanting to draw any attention to herself, almost ashamed that her, her, her offering was so small, particularly compared to that fella. Didn't know that Jesus was watching her, but she did know that God was watching her, and that, all, that was all that mattered. And that's why she came, because she wanted to please that God. She was betting her life that God would take care of her. Very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, the story gets better, because the heart of the story we find in verses 43 and 44 in Jesus' response to what he watches and what he sees. And I must tell you that his words are a double-edged sword. They cut two ways. The first thing, the, the first inference of his words 
is that there is an encouragement here to people who have little. Gang, listen to me. It's not how much you give. It's how much you have left. Do you get that? It's not how much you give. It's how much you have left. You know, one of the things that you've heard a lot around here uh, of late is this. Not equal gifts, but equal sacrifice. But that's one of the encouragements to those who have little. But the other part of this sword is a sobering exhortation to those who have much. Jesus scoffs at those who were betting on their money to be impressive to people and God, I guess. Now, let me make, four, let me make six applications of that, those words and then leave you with three lessons and we're finished. Let me see if I can do this hurriedly. Here's the first application, I think, that we can draw from these, these last two words, the verses. First, ladies and gentlemen, and for, and for me the most important, when it comes to giving... The posture of one's heart makes all the difference in the world. When it comes to giving, we're concerned about motive. Gang, look with me at the text. I want you to look at verse 41. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw... How? How? He saw how? He saw how the giving was done. Gang, the IRS doesn't care one whit how I give to them. They don't care whether I give grudgingly or ungrudgingly. Neither does my finance company. But God does. Somebody said they saw a bumper sticker that said, God loveth a cheerful giver, but he also accepteth from a grouch. Well, that is not true, ladies and gentlemen. It is not true. In fact, God is weighing our motivations as we give. And gang, that idea, that is that he weighs our motivations, is a terror and a comfort. If you are giving rightly, it's a comfort. If you are not, it should be a terror. Now, which is it for you, ladies and gentlemen? Which is it? What spills out of your heart every time you write a check to the church, huh? I want to read you something. This is 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. According to that text, ladies and gentlemen, you give the wrong way and you get no credit. You get no credit in heaven. You might get some credit around here, but you get no credit in heaven because, ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to giving, it is motive, it is posture of heart that matters. Secondly, the second application of these verses is that God can do an awful lot with a very little bit. Did you read my story in the Look newsletter? It was last, the last one, not this one. But did you read the story about the 57 cents? Did you read that story? about the little girl who died and gave 57 cents and it ended up becoming hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's a true story. It's a true story, ladies and gentlemen. And there is a congregation right now in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, Temple Baptist Church, that was founded off of that girl's 57-cent gift. And not only that, Temple University, where that coach has the zone defense, what's his name, John Cheney or something, 
That was all the result, ladies and gentlemen, of a girl's 57-cent gift. Oh, my goodness, Jesus has a strange set of scales. He does. Because, gang, when, when even small gifts are done unselfishly for his glory, prompted by love in his name, I'm telling you, they're important. I hope you parents are listening. Why didn't you get one of these? Do you know that you have an opportunity to teach your children something? Do you know you're about to miss that? Why would you not take advantage of that? Guys, according to this text, God can do an awful lot. With a very little gift. Third application from these verses. Gang. Jesus is doing some evaluating concerning how I use my money. Folks, um, you've got to understand that your giving is not neutral. That is, your giving is not a morally neutral act. There is a valuation that is going on that Jesus places on your giving, either good or bad. You know, that woman probably, or did not know that Jesus, what, what, what he ever thought of her, and it, we're never told in there that she went on to live a life with a whole lots of money. In fact, she probably doesn't know that you and I are even discussing her. But one day, when it's all over, a day of accountability is going to reveal the architecture of a very beautiful soul, hers. Gang, Jesus sat next to that box and I want you to know something. He sits next to that one, too. There is a valuation that is going on. Fourth, our God is supremely egalitarian. Oh, I love that word. Egalitarian means that he loves equality. <laughs> um, there is no advantage for the poor or the rich. There is no advantage for the educated or the uneducated or the famous or the non-famous. Billy Graham has no advantage over the humblest believer, nor vice versa. All of us, without exception, look at your children. All of us, without exception, can do great things for the Lord God. Fifth, make no mistake about it, my, lady, my friends. Jesus is interested in what you do with your money. The reason I say that, is it not interesting to you that Jesus mentions the exact amount? He tells us exactly what the woman gave. I, I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, he's not concerned with the amount of zeros, but he knows they're there. The exact amount. How many zeros on that check this morning? Jesus knows about every one of them. Finally, in terms of application, how you relate to your money will say a whole lot about how you relate to God. Gang, get this straight. God does not want your money. He wants you. But he can never have you if he doesn't get or apart from your money.
Because, ladies and gentlemen, not because your money means a lot to him, but because your money means a lot to you. Now, my friends, listen to me. You know this truth. This is not brand new. Where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Here's what I ask you to do. Just trace your checks, and at the end of that path, you will find your heart. How do you like that? Where is your heart? Tell me. Here at Gracie Van? Is it? Well, you're tracing your checks. We'll help you find out. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I, I didn't create that truth. Where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Folks, um, God cares very little about your money, but he cares a lot about what it represents. Your heart. And I'm afraid to tell you this, but it's true. God uses money to measure maturity because our money means so much to us. I'm going to read you something I thought was kind of cute. We're almost finished here. Stay with me. This, I'm just quoting. There is a disease which is particularly virulent in this part of the 20th century. It is called cirrhosis of the giver. It was actually discovered about 34 AD and ran a terminal course in a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5. It is an acute condition which renders the patient's hands immobile when it attempts to move from the billfold to the offering plate. The remedy is to remove the afflicted. Listen, 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 listen. The remedy is to remove the afflicted from the house of God, since it is clinically observable that this condition disappears in alternate environments such as golf courses or clubs or restaurants. Actually, the disease is really not a motor problem, but a heart problem. The best remedy is to fall in love with God with all your heart for where your heart is there will your treasure be also. Yes. Trace your checks and we'll find your heart. Three lessons and I'm finished. Gang, and if you are a young couple here please listen to me. It's just as true for the old couples, but money will do a whole lot more to you than it will do for you. Money will do a whole lot more to you than it'll do for you. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two. If God has blessed you with a large amount of money, I exhort you. Use that money now for the kingdom of God. Don't leave it for your children to fuss and fight over. You'll do them positive harm. They need to work as hard as you've worked more than they need a trust account. And then finally, this widow. All she had left the next day was Jesus. And that ain't enough for a lot of us. Oh, we don't have any problem 
believing that God will take care of her, our problem comes. Is he going to take care of me? You need to answer that right now. Will he? Our Father, we do thank you for your word that does not leave any rock unturned. It covers the whole gamut of our lives and uh, certainly this issue that means so much to us. And I pray that you will stimulate your people, not by my sermon, but by this widow, this woman who gave everything she had, betting her life that you were going to take care of her. A woman that when the next day arrived, all she had was you. Might that become enough for us, oh God? I pray for people, Lord, who have come here today for the first time and pray that you will cause them to hear something beyond the issue of money. Something serious, something rich and good. A group of people who honor and fear the living God. And I pray, Father, that you will use our congregation to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and that only. We make our prayer in Jesus' name.